You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I go away for a few years and the whole fucking world is upside down, Jules said angrily. Buildings are missing. You get strip searched every time you go to someone's office. Everybody sounds stoned because they're emailing people the whole time they're talking to you. Tom and Nicole are with different people. And now my rock and roll sister and her husband are hanging around with Republicans. What the fuck? Jennifer Egan is the author of The Invisible Circus, made into a movie starring Cameron Diaz. Look at me, a National Book Award finalist. The Keep, and Emerald City, a collection of short stories. Her new novel is A Visit from the Goon Squad. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. My pleasure. Jennifer, this is a novel that really speaks to something that interests me because one of my experiences of reading a really good book, the the reading experience, if I have a great reading experience, I can go back and visit that book as if the things that happened to it were in it are memories. And that's certainly true of this book. But this book is all about memory. Well, that's interesting. I, I feel that way very much about the books that I write. Like I, They are very intermingled with my own memories. And I find that when I'm thinking about the past, what I'm thinking about sometimes are just people I made up rather than people I know. So I, I like hearing that. Um, but yes, this book is very much about memory. Uh, it was inspired in large part by Proust, whom I finally came to as an adult as opposed to a 20-something-year-old, at which point I don't think I could really appreciate a lot of what Proust was writing about. And I found myself just luxuriating in his long, incredible, strange book and thinking, how can I write a contemporary book about time? I couldn't think of um, a book that had been written about time in very recent years. And it was, it was an interesting challenge to try to figure out how to do that. Now, one of the things that um, interested me about this book was that when we, if we hold a mirror up to memory then what we're really seeing is the future. And I I kind of like this idea, and this book made me think about this a lot because uh, you have characters who... um, on through the through the narrative, stop and and all of a sudden think about the present, how they will remember the present, what the how the present will be remembered. That's true. That's true. Um, there, especially there's a moment in the very first chapter when this woman is on a blind date and steals a wallet. And she she's it's a guy that she's met online and she's lied about her age. She's actually 35 and she said she's 28. He supposedly is also 28. But when they're in her apartment, she suddenly thinks that he's actually a lot younger than that. He seems slightly over enthusiastic about the bathtub that she has in her kitchen. And so she has this moment of wondering how he will remember her. Um, and I wasn't at the time. I didn't even know I was writing a book, actually, at the time that I wrote that first chapter. But it's funny how many elements of that chapter ended up ended up playing out through the rest of the book, one of which is that ultimately we do revisit her date many, many years later, and he finds himself trying to remember her. That kind of thing was very satisfying to do, of course, because, you know, I think we, especially as I find myself in my 40s, as I find myself remembering more and thinking about the quality of my memories, it's a natural corollary of that, that I find myself much more aware of how a particular moment will look in retrospect. You know, the present takes on a different tinge as one finds oneself thinking more about the past. And I, I guess I wanted to capture all of that. It, it's uh, like a line from an old uh, Carly Simon song, these are the good old days. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Actually, one line that I that I really was pleased about as I wrote it was the moment when uh, in the last chapter when Benny and Alex are talking. This is a music producer, um, once famous music producer who's actually a major character in the book and this young guy who wants to work for him. And the guy has made it sort of a pitch and it hasn't gone well. But then there's a moment when Benny, the, the aging producer, asks Alex, the younger guy, who in fact is the the date from that first chapter, um, whether he will work for him in in this in some capacity, and and Alex doesn't want to do the thing, the job, and he says no, and Benny basically says, I think you're going to do it, 
And Alex says, but why? I just told you I don't want to. And Benny says, just a feeling that we have some history together that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and that's exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but And I, I, as I wrote the line, I thought, I really like that. But I also thought, are there moments in my life when I have a sense that as I'm meeting someone, we, we'll have some history together that hasn't happened yet? I love that idea. Talk about the, the background part of this book, which is the the punk music scene in starts out in San Francisco in, in the, the 70s. Uh, did you research this or, or had you were you yourself immersed in it? it? Something in between. I was I was immersed in the sense that I was in high school. I graduated from Lowell High School in 1980. So I was certainly in San Francisco at that time and listening to music. And the punk scene was sort of incredible. Like it was a really it was new and raw and felt very dangerous and intense. So, of course, I was very drawn to it, but I had no immediate involvement with it. I had one friend from high school who really dove into it very deeply and actually got into a lot of trouble as a result of that. So my connection to it was mostly through her. And um, But I, I did go to lots of shows. I mean, we Lowell students just piled into a car and went to the Mabuhay Gardens to listen to bands. I mean, we weren't punk rockers. We were just... We were just observers, I guess. Um, although, you know, we were right in there dancing with everyone else. Um, so that, I didn't have to do much research, honestly, to to capture the textures of that moment because it was all in my memory. I had some, I got some things wrong. And luckily, that chapter was published in The New Yorker. So some fans wrote in and said, actually, you know, Green Apple um, Records was called Revolver Records back then. And I thought, oh, yeah. So that was very helpful. Um, but no, I didn't have to do much research at all. I, I remembered pretty much everything I wrote about in that chapter. One of the things I think that's interesting about this book is the vision of music and art and how, in a sense, we live in such a, a, a mediated world that we almost have no immediate experience of our own lives, that we see everything through a, a a lens of the art and the movies we've seen. Our lives are surrounded by soundtracks. And if even if the music's not playing out loud and speakers around us were thinking about it, I thought that was a really interesting uh, perception. Well, that I would say that's been an obsession of mine right from my first book, the question of how mediation of experience changes experience and whether the perception of ourselves as mediated figures um, becomes internalized to a degree that the actual quality of being alive is different. That's a question that's been on my mind from the very beginning in my first novel where I was interested in the basically the televising of the counterculture um, and how much how great a role mediation played in in the the exalted quality of that countercultural experience. So it's something that I'm really interested in. I don't know the answer. I mean, I'm just kind of I'm just asking the questions in, in a fictional realm. Um, but it's it's a good question, um, and I I continue to wonder about it as the technology and the mediation proliferate. There's a book that I think about a lot and reread occasionally by Daniel Borston called The Image, and it was published in 1961. This should be required reading for every person in America because before the televising of the Vietnam War, so really before the media permeated everyday experience in any way like it does now, this guy projected forward into all kinds of things that have all come to pass, one of which is as experience becomes more mediated, we crave so-called authenticity. And then the media strives to fulfill that craving with more real, in quotes, you know, inside kind of stories. Well, he's talking about reality TV, basically, which couldn't be more mediated or false, and yet somehow satisfies this or tries to satisfy this craving we have for authenticity, and yet because it so fails to deeply satisfy that craving, it just sharpens the craving. So all of that is is basically um, forecast in this book, and I think about it a lot. One of the things I, I, I like uh, about this book is, you know, going back to the 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 theme of memory, is the uh, idea that memories can surface and disturb and change the present. I think that's something that I had never thought about before, but memories of the past can come up and absolutely change the moment that you're in. 
True. It's funny. I um I think you maybe are thinking a little bit of that chapter where the where Benny, the music producer, is being besieged by these shame memories. And it's funny because I had written the first chapter of the book, as I said, it's about a woman who steals a wallet. She has a problem with stealing and she's on a date. And there was just a passing reference to her former boss, who's a music producer who sprinkles gold flakes in his coffee and sprays pesticide in his armpits. And at the time that I wrote that, because I write in this very blind way, I don't know what's coming, I just thought, oh, that's that just is a, a thumbnail sketch to conjure up a decadent record producer. But I found myself thinking later, okay, so why does he do those? Who is he? And why does he do those things? And that led me to write the next chapter, at which point I began to wonder for the first time if this was actually going to be a book. Um, but at the time, I had found myself really derailed by these memories that I was having of nothing much. I mean, they weren't as dramatic as the shame memories that I ended up creating for Benny. But I would find myself just recalling stupid things I had said or done maybe 10 years earlier, sometimes to people that I didn't even know anymore. And I just couldn't figure out why that was happening. And most of all, I couldn't figure out how to stop it. I never... I never really exactly stopped it or figured out why it was happening, but at least I made some use of it <laughs> for Benny, who is is has much more dramatic and kind of devastating shame memories that are overwhelming him. And as it turns out, in his case, what we begin to sense as the chapter goes on, and he's newly divorced and trying to connect with his son, and in in a subtle way, without saying it directly, I try to suggest that infidelity on his part is what led to the end of his marriage. And in some sense, this is really about guilt. Now, I don't know, I don't know if that was the case with me, too. But, um, but I was interested in the way that the past can not just waft up and color a moment, but actually interrupt a moment, which is what's happening to Benny. This book, I think, uh, carries that kind of theme through it uh, of looking at the past and looking at the future and kind of confusing the two sometimes. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I find myself a little confused by that nowadays. I feel like um, I find that I, I, I don't know why my mind goes to certain places at certain times. I feel like sometimes I'm really imbued with the past and other times um, it seems very distant. And often what what brings the past back most strongly is music. And that's, I think, one reason that I ended up focusing on on music from all kinds of angles. The, the musical experience of teenagers, which we already alluded to, the punk rock scene, um, but also the music industry, because... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think no, arguably more than any other, that industry has has been in a free fall as as a result of our move into the digital as a culture, and so it seemed like such an interesting marker of change. You know, it's not just the music of our teenage years that we remember. It's also the way, the form that that music arrived in. So for me, you know, when I think about playing music as a teenager, I think about the stackable. Um, turntable that I had where I would, you know, kind of create my mix, if you will, of the records I wanted to hear in what order. And they would, you know, they would fall down and I would play the music extremely loudly. My parents would complain. Um, You know, it was it was one of those scenes. And then, of course, you know, for another generation, it was getting the CDs, um, you know, and 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 having more control over the order, maybe shuffling. And of course, now we buy music in this very atomized way, which I find sad because I feel like there's a real loss there on the part of the artists of the ability to create a a concept or a vision with component parts and hope that the listener will will see the whole thing or hear the whole thing all the way through. That's that happens less and less. We go, you know, now there are certain hits. You can see which ones people like when you go on iTunes and there's a tendency to think, well, that must be the good one. And all those little in-between songs that that I would listen to because they just were between, you know, the songs I maybe liked the best, um, those fall away. And I think that's that's sad. Well, your character uh, refers to the uh, Benny talks about the digitization of music as a, was it a cultural genocide? Is it? Holocaust? <laughs> a cultural Holocaust, right? I thought. Well, I don't. I don't share Benny's view, and I, I certainly don't approve of throwing the word Holocaust around like that. However, it's not me; it's Benny. Um, you know, he's being very dramatic. Uh, on the other hand, I sympathize with him because he he feels that he's given his life to this industry and it's falling apart around him, and he feels that what he's being forced to to 
um, to record and create is horrible, um, or actually shit, is what he says. <laughs> and we learn later, not in that story, we sense him teetering at the brink of something in that story. But what we learn later is that ultimately he essentially committed professional suicide by serving cow pies to his um, to the executives who own his record company, and needless to say, was fired as a result. So he he goes a bit off the deep end. We don't see that happening, but we we see we we have a sense of the volatility that might have resulted in that. Now, um this book made me think of one of my favorite David Bowie songs, which is Rock and Roll Suicide. And that was one of the scenes, but there's another one as well. Uh you you talk about the the varieties of art and, and when your character says suicide as a weapon, that we all know, but what about as art? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, that's that was a character named Bosco that I had a lot of fun with. Um, and uh, it's funny because, you know, I, I kept I wanted to write about Bosco as a young man when he's basically kind of a punk rock star. Now I have to ask you, Bosco, did you ever put Bosco in your milk? No, I don't. Oh, wait, what is that? Like a chocolate powder? It was a, cho- it was a chocolate syrup that you put in your milk. That's funny. I'm sure I wanted to and my mother wouldn't let me because we lived in San Francisco and mm. everyone was very health conscious. <laughs> I had to take <laughs> lots of vitamins and cod liver oil. Um, anyways, I wanted to write about, I don't know, so I don't know why I named him Bosco. It just popped into my head, but I wanted to write about him as a young man and that never quite worked. Um, so what I, what I got was Bosco as an overweight has-been who has cancer and um, has this crazy idea for a comeback, which is that he will um, he will put himself through a tour that is so grueling and punishing and impossible for him to really execute in a healthy way, given his physical state, that he will actually die at some point during the tour. And that that's a foregone conclusion. Everyone knows that. And that they can build some publicity around this inevitable death, um, which, of course, is, you know, sad and, and you know, kind of horrible and also sort of funny. Um and so that was that was the idea of the suicide tour. Although I should say that one of the things I I loved doing in this book was surprise trying to thwart any sense of inevitability that the reader might have. So without explaining exactly what does happen to Bosco, we do learn in passing that the outcome is not as he imagined. Because Kitty is so young and well-nourished, so sheltered from the gratuitous cruelty of others, so unaware as yet that she will reach middle age and eventually die, possibly alone, because she has not yet disappointed herself, merely startled herself and the world with her own premature accomplishments, Kitty's skin, that smooth, plump, sweetly fragrant sack upon which life scrawls the record of our failures and exhaustion, is perfect. And by perfect, I mean that nothing hangs or sags or snaps or wrinkles or ripples or bunches. I mean that her skin is like the skin of a leaf, except it's not green. I can't imagine such skin having an unpleasant odor or texture or taste ever being, for example, it is frankly inconceivable, even mildly eczematous. One of the things that that I, I loved about this book was that as a reading experience, this is really a phenomenal novel to read as a novel because um and what i began to realize how it worked was it's like a, one of those fireworks shows where you'll see a bunch of different explosions here and there and there and then all of a sudden they'll come together and form this really gorgeous picture you'll see the whole when everything is exploded you'll see this whole big picture did you write the novel this way i i, I mean i i've Given that there's a big PowerPoint presentation in here, I was wondering how much uh, you used a computer to architect this novel because the architecture is just mind-bogglingly complex and entertainingly fun to read. Well, that's I love that metaphor. I have to say I had not thought of the fireworks metaphor. I struggled to find the right metaphor for what I was trying to do, and I thought – is it a constellation? I definitely didn't like the so-called interlocked stories because that just, I don't, I mean, locking is not something that sounds exciting or good. I thought, I, I, what I ended up feeling was that it was entangled stories. And it's funny because what I what I wasn't thinking about at all was a kind of um, web metaphor for the book, but that has been pointed out in reviews that it sort of in some ways mimics online experience or Facebook where you're interested in one thing and then your attention um, is diverted somewhere else and suddenly you're plunged into a different world. I wasn't actually thinking of that, but I really like the fireworks metaphor. Um, 
In terms of sort of of how I was conceiving it as I went and whether I diagrammed that, I did not. I don't, I'm not really very computer-oriented, truthfully, as a fiction writer, mm-hmm. um, although I certainly use it. I use it as a typing machine. But I write by hand, and then I type in what I've written, and then I edit by hand on hard copies. So I really have a rule, in fact, that I do not make any changes looking at the screen because for some reason, the changes that I make looking at a screen in fiction, this is totally different from my journalism, which I write on the computer, in fiction, those changes are wrong if I... If I make them on the screen, I just my my sense of what should happen is not working right when I'm looking at a screen. So so, no, I didn't really diagram it in that way. I did struggle to understand what the concept of the of the structure would be, because I and I think that's why I was grabbing for metaphors, you know, just saying, hey, it's a bunch of stuff like that. It's not satisfying. Um, So at one point for a long time, I thought that the organizing principle would be that time would move backwards, which is not a new idea. Charles Baxter did it beautifully. Um, And uh, it's you know, it's I'm sure others have, too. But I thought, well, that's I can work with that. That's an organizing principle. But then when I started setting stories in the future, that blew a hole through that because I knew I didn't want to start with those stories. So then I thought, okay, well, time goes backwards and then it will leap forward. But in fact, when I read the chapters in that order following that principle, the book was quite flat. There were no fireworks, to use your metaphor. Like the hope with something like this is that each individual part will be strong and my, it was one of my criteria for inclusion was that nothing – I wasn't going to use anything that had to lean on anything else. Each thing had to be self-sufficient um, so that each unit is strong and then the combination of those units is kind of explosive. That's the hope. Well, when I read it with chronology moving backwards and then leaping forwards, there were no – there was not even a – there was not even a little pop of a firework. It was really flat. So I knew that I had, uh, that was wrong. So then I thought, okay, so how on earth do I organize this? How does the material want to be um, positioned so that it, so that I can get that explosion that I'm hoping for? And what I found was that that I had to use a very kind of subjective and idiosyncratic method, which was having just read this, who who is the peripheral character that I will be most surprised and delighted to find myself plunged into the middle of for the next chapter? And that was basically how I did it. Um, And then there's one fault line where you have to make a leap and there is no... It's basically... um, You have to go from A to B. Yeah, exactly. There is a moment (laughs) where we we have to make a leap. But my hope was that by that time, I've worked people into the story enough that they'll be willing to... I mean, it's it's not that they're jumping to characters they don't know about. They're jumping to characters they haven't heard about for a while that are not suggested by the prior chapter. So I guess every book needs its fault line. Anyway, that was was my organizing principle. I mean, it's, it's the strangest... Um, sort of least codified principle I can imagine, but it, it was the one that seemed to work best. You know, that's one of the real joys of the book. I mean, for me, was the mystery of of we will encounter a narrator. I'm going, who is this? Who am I hearing from now? And it was really exciting to figure it out as a reader to figure it out and put together the the uh, the implications of who I was reading about and. and you were talking about how iTunes has demolished our ability to hear a concept album, as it were, or just hear any album in the order the artist intended. And I can see why that would disturb you because reading this book, as we were just talking about, as you were just saying, if if that happened to books and novels, I mean, <laughs> they would become unreadable. Yeah. And actually, when I, when people have mentioned to me, oh, I... You know, they've suggested to me that they're reading these pieces out of order, these chapters. I'm I'm unhappy because I feel like it was one of the biggest challenges of the whole undertaking was to understand exactly how to make the chemistry work, to how to make the chain reaction. I mean, I'm, again, I'm like scrambling for metaphors, but um, how to make the fireworks. I like that one. Erupt. And um, I don't think it really works if you read the chapters out of order. No. You, you may get something, but you're not going to get what I intended. I wanted to talk a little bit just about, you know, the characters, the people, and what drives this novel and makes it really wonderful um, are the people. This You have such a 
great hold on the stories of people's lives. And there's lots of families in this novel we see. And there are this, the families are as splintered in, in many ways as are the narratives. And I, I'm guessing that's not an accident. Yeah, well, I, I I didn't want to just write about a family. I felt really strongly that I I was trying to again. I just I wanted to avoid obvious centrality, and so the family as an organizing principle is felt a little bit too central to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you know, in a way, these individuals who are linked in more unusual ways. For example, the the two main characters are linked through a work relationship, which mm-hmm. is something that I feel I haven't really read that much about, actually. No, no. Um, the kind of intimacy of of working together day after day, um, which is you know, we meet Sasha after she's no longer working for Benny. But when we when we read the chapter about Benny having his shame memories and flailing around, Sasha is still his assistant. It takes place earlier. And there's and in a way, the whole subject of that chapter, the, the drama of it surrounds Benny's um, brief uh, conviction that the intimacy and the comfort he feels with Sasha, his longtime assistant, is actually love that he that they are meant to be together because he's flailing around and feeling so uncertain. And, and she suddenly seems like his lifeline. And so he becomes convinced that he loves her. That's basically what happens in that chapter. Um and we, we never really know exactly what happens, but we pretty much know nothing happens because we've already seen her at some point later and she, there's no sign of him. In fact, she's just telling funny stories about his odd habits on her dates. But, um, but some of the scenes that were the most fun to write were the scenes in which family is, is playing out. And, for example, um, I particularly enjoyed Stephanie, uh, Benny's ex-wife. But when we meet her, they're still married. And her relationship with her brother, Jules, uh, and I read a little bit of um, of that when he's ranting in the car to her, because Jules has been in jail for several years for having a kind of breakdown while interviewing a celebrity and actually physically attacking her or trying to, although she certainly ends up um, doing more damage to him than he does to her. Anyway, he comes back, um, he's paroled, and he's had great behavior, and he's living with Stephanie and Benny. Um, and he and Stephanie are chafing against one another, as you, just as you would imagine in a sibling situation. And that was just fun. I, I think I think especially because I felt like in a lot of ways the book was so out there. Like it, it was often, you know, walking a line between reality and farce. Um, you know, there are obviously all these strange, um, you know, formal things that I do, like the PowerPoint. So to it felt doubly and triply important to root that in family ties and relationships that are recognizable so that the whole thing doesn't feel like it's just all floating away from the world we know. So I think it's no accident, for example, that in the PowerPoint, what is being described I mean, the PowerPoint is allegedly created by a 12-year-old. This is how she keeps her journal. And what she's talking about is 100% her family. And I hadn't really thought about it until this moment, but I think I I like the strangeness or the paradox of a family kind of – a family set of roots holding down a a structurally risky and strange and even kind of unrecognizable chapter – well, I, I think that one I wanted to talk a little bit about this novel in term as a science fiction novel because I think it's a brilliant science fiction novel. And uh that you that particular chapter um uses the technology of literature, treats literature as a technology and just takes us forward not that far to a time that's almost with us, and I'm sure there are probably twelve years old olds out there right now making PowerPoint. I mean, there are <laughs> making PowerPoints <laughs> <In> about <school. laughs> about their family. So, um, talk about you playing with the you know literature itself as a technology. Well, it's funny. I didn't. I I I didn't think about it exactly that way. But I think the way I ended up there because I do a lot of texting in the book, and I in in a way invent my own text language. It's a little bit different. I actually think it's kind of cool. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> but I haven't actually used it in my regular texting life. Um, but I think once I realized that this was a book that was going to be built around. Uh, decentralized narrative. So there wasn't going to be a main character or a main story, that it was going to be this constellation or these fireworks or whatever you will. At that point, I I thought, okay, I want to try to do as many things technically as I can. I want it to reach as far as it can in 
every possible direction. So there's a story in second person. There's a story written as a celebrity profile. There's the PowerPoint. Um, and I, I, I guess it just naturally led me into areas where it seemed that language and writing have reached certain extremes. Texting is certainly one. Now, I realize novels are being written on cell phones in Japan, et cetera. But, um, and, that, and that's actually interesting to me. Um, but I was, I was mostly interested in trying to find the poetry that was possible in some of these extreme forms of language. So I was really taken with the way some sentences looked when I wrote them in this texting language. And they seemed to hang there in a really suggestive, almost eerie way. And that was thrilling. And the same with the PowerPoint. I mean, I think what drew me to it was not, oh, I just love using PowerPoint. Now it's time to do fiction. I had never used PowerPoint. I didn't own PowerPoint. And I didn't have enough memory in my laptop to even have it. So I had to, there were many steps required before I could even read a PowerPoint, much less work in that genre. But I think what interested me about it was that the sense that it was a genre and what would happen if I used it for fiction. And then once I got into it, I actually found it richer as a form than I ever had expected because there are things you can do in PowerPoint that are actually really hard to do in conventional fiction, one of which is create the possibility of multiple readings. Like there are some graphics that you can use in which it is just um, in which you do not control whether the reader reads horizontally, vertically or circularly. That was really fun. It was interesting to let the, the language float there and not know how people would read it. I thought that was pretty cool. Now, did you you write in longhand? Did you write your PowerPoint slides in longhand first? I tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it was it was dead on arrival. Basically, all I was writing was bullet points. And also, I think there was just some way in which, I mean, PowerPoint is really meant to be viewed on a screen. It mm-hmm. is that it is it is a screen form. It looks beautiful, if you don't mind my saying so. <laughs> on the screen, especially I think my color version is just beautiful. I worked so hard on those colors. I mean, it's not what you expect to find yourself doing as a fiction writer. Um, anyway, writing PowerPoint on legal pads was was a was a non-starter. And when I finally got the memory, got the program, and started looking at PowerPoints, especially looking at them on the screen, like I would have people send me their corporate PowerPoints and I would I would gaze at them. Um, then at that point, the form began to feel more alive to me. And it, it only sometimes I would um, I would begin a slide by just creating the bullet points with the information I wanted in there or the sort of components of the fictional moment, if you will. But again, that was just very dead until I found a way to represent them graphically that 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 revealed the structure of the fictional moment. So that was also kind of fun. When do you think about the structure of a fictional fictional moment? I don't. Even though I weigh every single word, that's not the that's not the way in which I'm thinking about them. So that was also kind of fun. Like I would think, you know, because these diagrams ultimately I was creating my own graphics which made me feel like quite an expert. But, you know, there are basically there are certain categories of structure that PowerPoint offers you and of course there are many other slide programs that some people say are better, but PowerPoint was the one I was using. You know, is it a relationship moment? Is it a is it a process? Is it a cause and effect moment? Um I had to ask those questions when I would look at these at these bullet points about a particular moment, and that was all kind of interesting. You know, PowerPoint has such a, a bad reputation in in many ways because it's held forth as a vision of our dumbed down world, and I think you've completely one hundred percent rehabilitated it and taken it away from all of those people. Well, I don't know. That may not be a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm, it's not like I'm dying to keep working in PowerPoint. I have to say honestly, I think what gives it its bad reputation is a is a corporate quality that that PowerPoints have. Um, and that was something I struggled with because I knew I wanted to write a piece, a chapter in PowerPoint, but I couldn't figure out how to avoid that corporate feeling. And I kept thinking, I mean, the question really was, who's creating this PowerPoint and why? You can't just suggest that suddenly, you know, we're just reading narrative in PowerPoint for no reason. There, there has to be some kind of frame that explains it. For me, the way to get around that was that it's a 12-year-old keeping her journal. Somehow I felt like that undercut the corporate quality of it and or neutralized it and allowed 
first of all, me and ultimately, hopefully the reader to just sort of enter into it without a sense of its yucky corporateness. Um, But, you know, that was a very particular that was a, a difficult calibration to find a way to do that. So. You know, it's not that I think I I think all narratives should be in PowerPoint. I mean, I have a sister who works for a consulting firm, and that is a little bit how they think. Like there was a a really hilarious article in the New York Times about how incomprehensible a lot of PowerPoints are in the military, and there was a hilarious graphic of just arrows, and you know, it was just it was nutty. Who would ever understand it? It was described as spaghetti, and my sister, of course, forwarded this to me. Um, with some comments from her team where she works. And they, the comments were mostly along the lines of, why couldn't that article have been a PowerPoint? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that may be going a little too far. Parts of this novel are set in the future. And one of the things you do very well is to suggest a world that's much larger than your story shows us the parts of. Um, how much of that world of the future did you have in your mind as you wrote it? Or did you just carve it whole out of the darkness, the prime primordial darkness? You know, I think that it, I think that it, the characters and the action led the way. I, I, I mean, I was led into the future, not so much because I was thinking, gosh, I really want to write about the future, but more because I wanted to revisit this particular person, the, the date from the very first chapter, the, mm-hmm. who's very young, um, and, you know, and really a, someone we meet in passing, but who to me seemed interesting enough that I thought it was worth investigating what had become of his life. The only way to do that was to leap into the future because the the time frame was pretty well set in terms of where we start. And he would if I wanted to visit him as, as someone pushing 40, I was going to have to get past the 2020 point. <laughs> so um, so I was forced there. But then I found it you know, very evocative and challenging and interesting to just imagine a few things about how that world would be. It felt pretty effortless, honestly. I didn't think, now I'm going to imagine the future. What will it consist of? I, I came about it in, much, in a much more casual way than that. Um, and and uh, and I guess, as you say, all I do is really suggest some things about the future. It's not a, it's not a, a well-thought-out uh, vision that I'm trying to you know, push here. It's just, I just imagined a few things. I thought about the climate. (laughs) I thought about terrorism. I thought about technology. And I tried to just make a couple of leaps forward from where we are now. And, um, and, and I just wrote from there. Well, you really have a flair for it. It's very, it is uh, like the best science fiction. It's very evocative. There's a scene where, um, uh, a husband takes his daughter on a walk into the desert to, to see these uh, solar panels and they move and, they, and I, I don't want to say much more about it but it's just really it's something that it's a scene that I could just feel like happened to me at some point in my life because it has a real feel of truth oh that's so sweet well you know I don't I don't really know the desert very well and so I was I in a way going into the desert in that story or that chapter made it made it easy for me to enter into what felt like more of a dreamlike state. It just felt so, in a way, very primal. Two people out in the desert watching these miles of solar panels. I mean, it was it was sort of strange and interesting to imagine it. And then representing it in PowerPoint was also funny because you one thing about PowerPoint is you really can't describe anything. I mean, you get very, very little text. So it's all about suggestion. And of course, using some of the shape, the graphic possibilities to, but I don't use photos or drawings or anything like that. I just try to use basic shapes. And in that case, it's, it's chevrons. Um, interlocking chevrons to suggest the thing that we're looking at. And I have to just say again that with the color, I think it's even more amazing. And we can see that on your website, right? It's all, it's right there as a slideshow with sound because the um, the PowerPoint is called Great Rock and Roll Pauses. And what it's about really is, is this 12-year-old girl's um, description via slides of the difficulties around her brother who has an Asperger's, he's, he's one year older, he has sort of an Asperger's obsession with the pauses in rock and roll songs. He insists on playing them for his family endlessly, not just the songs, but the actual pauses, which he loops, and they all have to sit there and listen to them. Well, this gets on his dad's nerves. 
as you can imagine. And there's a lot of friction between father and son. And um, and I, I myself became rather obsessed with the pauses in rock and roll songs in the course of writing this. And um, and in the slideshow, you can hear 10-second snippets of the songs, which include the pauses. So it's pretty cool. Like, I have to say, this is not something I've really had the occasion to do in any of my other books. And it's it, it. I mean, while I fear and dread the the disappearance of books and the threat of all these technologies, I can't deny that I had a lot of fun thinking about other ways to tell a story and reaching into some of these much more nonverbal and more visual and and computer oriented realms. It was it was interesting. Well, but there are many classic uh, novel moments in this book that just really are, for one thing, it's funny. It's a very funny book. There are some really great scenes. And I'm thinking of Ladal's ill-fated party. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I I enjoyed um, I enjoyed writing funny in this one. I feel like as I get older, I want more and more to embrace humor because I feel like it's just the best way to do whatever thing you're trying to do, whether it's sad. I mean, in The Keep, I was trying to one of the big questions I had was, can humor and and fear coexist? And in this one, I think it was much more sort of humor and tragedy in some way, or just humor and gravitas, trying to to do both of those things. Um, but the chapter you're talking about achieved the thing that I was most interested in doing, but it was hard to do it, and I don't think I did it very often, which was to write about things that are completely insane, that are absolutely out there, and yet seem totally plausible and true. Mm -hmm. So in this case, it's a publicist who has been disgraced, and the source of the disgrace is the party you're alluding to, where... The idea she it was supposed to be a defining social event of the of the moment, um, like Truman Capote's black and white ball or some other famous parties over the years. And so she invites, you know, 500 people. She's the person who knows everyone. And then she has this design idea that involves um, suspending trays of colored liquid uh, um, oil and water and color over everyone's heads at the event under hot lights that will cause the oil and water to swirl and create these amazing effects, all of which is very beautiful. But unfortunately, the plastic trays melt. (laughs) And then boiling oil is dumped onto the heads of all of her guests. And this is, of course, a huge disaster. Um, but the, but and so that that was one thing that was fun to write. But then th- just the concept of that chapter, I had the most amusing time with, which is that the, she's desperate to support her daughter, who's in private school and very spoiled, um, used to the good life that they used to have. And so out of desperation, she accepts the job of trying to rehabilitate the reputation of a genocidal dictator. And um, her first insight is that he should wear a fuzzy blue hat. And that actually works pretty well. <laughs> but then she has an even bigger idea, which is that he should be linked to a movie star. And the movie star she picks is the very one that Jules Jones attacked in the celebrity profile chapter. And she's had some personal troubles since then and some attitude problems. Um, and so... Uh, Dolly, the the publicist, brings the dictator and this actress together and accompanies the actress to the dictator along with her daughter. And it's a ridiculous, silly, slightly scary moment that is hopefully really funny. And that that's that was the kind of humor I was going for. Crazy, but true. That kind of humor. And there's quite a bit of it. And I think it works really well. It keeps the 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 novel is very lively to read, all these different styles. You really look, as we start to figure out what we're getting into in the book, it just becomes more and more fun to figure out and encounter each of these styles. Um, As you transition from one style to another, how did you know, especially I love the, you know, the the second person chapter. There's a, a, a Stanislaw Lem wrote a book called The Perfect Vacuum, where he does, um, Perfect reviews of non-existent books, and one of the books is called Twa. <laughs> oh my God, I already love it. <laughs> it's written in the second person, and and the review of it is very funny. And I thought, oh my God, it's Twa. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, because the principle of the book is so much diversity, which in a way has been my principle among my books already. So I feel like this is the book where my 
essential attitude from book to book, which is throw out what you know, don't let there be any overlap, and start fresh. In this book, I tried to incorporate that into one book and see how many times I could do it. Um, so I, I, I really wanted to investigate that particular moment that the second person story uh, or chapter, which is called Out of Body, um, visits, which is early 90s, pre-internet, but well, the internet existed, but pre-public knowledge of it, but right on the brink where certain people really did know what was coming and most everyone else had no idea. The kind of grunge moment musically and just that that kind of that that moment in New York. And I initially tried to do it from Sasha's point of view. So the thief from chapter one, whom we visit at different moments of her life. But one of my um, rules had been no, no character gets more than one chapter from his or her point of view. So I was breaking that rule out of desperation. But it didn't work. It was it was really lame. So then I thought, okay, I've got I'm I've got to it's got to be from the point of view of someone who's very close to Sasha. And at that point, I thought the only way I can do this is in second person. If I can't make it work in second person, it's not going in because I just didn't want to repeat myself and create another. I didn't want to tell it in the third person. I didn't want to tell it in the first person. All of those felt like I had used them enough. So it was second person or nothing. And in a way, I think the reason that I, I, I ended up feeling comfortable with it is that it's about a guy who's very alienated from himself. He's gay and closeted. He's extremely uncomfortable with what he fears is his sexuality. He's also sort of in love with a woman, Sasha. But most of all, he is he he is not comfortable owning his own impressions. He thinks about himself from the outside. So the second person was perfect for that. Um, although in the end, I do move out of second person into first person at the very end of the story, which I'm not sure really works. But I thought you can't write a story in second person and stay in second person. There has to be a moment where you flip it and that self-alienation ends. There has to be a moment when the person re-enters his or her own imp- impressions or perceptions in a first person way. So I tried to do all of that. This novel involves a great deal of time travel and contraction. Uh, if I were to say it reminded me of anything, a little bit of, of uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. That's interesting. And, and you have some of the, I think, some of the the views of um, uh, some of the things that I remember taking away from Vonnegut back in, in some ancient time that no longer exists now, <laughs> uh, which is, that, you know, this idea that seeming is being. That's interesting. Yes. Well, I'm I'm very interested in that idea. I can't say that I was thinking of Vonnegut. I mean, it's funny. There, there are books that, that, you know, one enjoys reading, and then there are books that feel vitally connected to a particular work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, in terms of the, the moving around aspect of the – I mean, as I said, thematically, in terms of time, music, all of that, I think I was – it was – it's Proust. It's a – you know, it's and that's why I quote Proust at the beginning of the mm-hmm. book. I think it's necessary to acknowledge that. In terms of the moving around and visiting people at different moments and um, and and uh, and seeing the the jarring transition of a character from very peripheral to very central, I was thinking more honestly about television. Mm. And I don't watch a lot of television. In fact, I watch almost none. But I was really caught up in The Sopranos. And I found myself thinking a lot about why that show was so powerful for me, why I thought about it so much, why it did affect me like a, a book would, where I, I think part of it was that I lived with it over years. And, and, you know, in a way, watching that show was kind of a Proustian experience. You see the character's age. You know, Tony Soprano looks really different by the end than he did at the beginning. Um, and so do, and, and his kids are essentially adults, whereas they were little kids at the beginning. So I was thinking a lot about how that show, where, where its power lay and how it was that it, it worked so strongly. And um, I thought a lot about the the, the difference between public and private in the show. So, for example, it works with a lot of cliches. You know, Tony Soprano is a totally cliched mobster from the outside, and yet we know his inner life, which is strange and nuanced. I, I was interested in all of that, and I think I tried to, I really consciously tried to do some of that in the book. Well, there are some wonderful parts 
of the book that that almost reminding me of like Egyptian architecture, where you'll tell, you know, we'll read a scene and then at the very end you just wind the thing up and 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 take us through, you know, a big chunk of somebody's life in a paragraph. It's like a little inscribed fresco in the wall. Oh, that's interesting. I I was very interested in future leaps. I mm-hmm. felt like when I would encounter them in other people's work, I was galvanized. But I felt like I, I wanted to use the device more than I was seeing it used. And I did it a little bit in one of the chapters, which I had written earlier, actually, than it appears in the book, um, which is about Sasha as a, as a runaway in Naples and her uncle trying to find her. And at the very end, I make this swooping leap into her future. And we know instantly, um, you know, what happens to her. And I found that kind of exhilarating. And then I thought, well, I want to I want to have a chapter in which basically the the technical challenge is or the technical idea, since I was trying to have it be different in each one, is that the future imbues the present. And I started doing it right away in that chapter. So it's people on a safari in Africa and they, you know, some Samburu warriors come to sing and dance for their party. And one of the warriors um, is is very attractive, and the, the the daughter of the father on the safari is clearly drawn to him. And in a way, it's a sort it's a very cliched encounter, you know, the, the native singing and dancing for the Western tourist. Ugh. Um, but then I leaped into the Samburu warrior's future, and we learned that his um, grandson will end up in America and have the very sword that this guy is carrying right now in his Tribeca apartment under a skylight. And in fact, we end up meeting that that character later in the book. I just found that so fun and exciting. But it's interesting because the New Yorker excerpted that chapter as well, and they were not comfortable with having so many of those future leaps. They only wanted to keep the ones at the end. They found it overbearing to have those happening more often. And I think it is kind of overbearing, but that's what interested me about it. I've been speaking with Jennifer Egan. Her new novel is A Visit from the Goon Squad. It's a wonderful, involving novel that will keep you glued to the pages. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.